Welcome to an AFR Christmas special featuring Dr. Ray Pritchard of Keep Believing Ministries. Ray is founder and president of that ministry and a frequent guest on our program, Today's Issues. Now with the message, The Shoulders of Jesus, here's Dr. Ray Pritchard. You wouldn't think that John Wilkes Booth had anything to do with Christmas, but in a strange way, he did. In early April, 1865, the bloody civil war that had torn America asunder was drawing to a close. Richmond had fallen, Lee had surrendered, and the end was in sight. Motivated by anger and despair, John Wilkes Booth decided to take matters into his own hands, entering the box at Ford's Theater, where Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln were watching a play called Our American Cousin. Booth fired a bullet into the head of Abraham Lincoln. He died a few hours later. The news deeply troubled a young minister in Philadelphia named Phillips Brooks. When the slain president's body lay in state in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Brooks went to pay his respects. Later, he preached a sermon on Abraham Lincoln's legacy. A few months later, hoping to lift his spirits, the church sent him to the Holy Land. The itinerary included a horseback ride from Jerusalem to Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. Now remember, this was in the late 1860s. That's another world from today. Back then, Bethlehem was a small village, far removed from the bustling city it would later become. By nightfall, the pastor was in the field where, according to tradition, the shepherds heard the angelic announcement. Then he attended the Christmas Eve service at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. Now, something about the beauty and simplicity of that visit stayed with Phillips Brooks when he returned to America. Three years later, he wrote a Christmas poem for the children's service at Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia. He then gave it to Lewis Redner, the church organist, who composed the music in time for the children to sing it in the service. That poem, set to that music, became a favorite Christmas carol when it was published in 1874. The first verse gives us a poetic picture of Bethlehem as Phillips Brooks saw it. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The last two lines remind us that Bethlehem was more than a picturesque byway in the Holy Land. It seems like we come to the end of this year with more fears than hopes given the shaky state of the world. The headlines tell a grim story, turmoil in Washington, winds of change in England, saber rattling in North Korea, trouble in the Middle East, war in Ukraine, pastors attacked in India, Christians murdered in Nigeria, crime arising in our big cities. We hear so much about fake news that we can't decide what is real and what isn't. Who can we trust? Wow, that's a good question. Who can we trust? Bad news abounds. Against that backdrop, we have the words of the angel to the terrified shepherds. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Question, where is the good news 
the angel promised. Let's wind the clock back across the centuries, back to Bethlehem, but don't stop there. Go back, 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 all the way to the time of Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before the birth of Christ. He gives us the real answer to that question. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's Isaiah 9:6. God answers our anxiety with a manger in Bethlehem, with a manger and a tiny, helpless baby boy. There in that manger, in the out-of-the-way little town of Bethlehem, there we find the baby who brings us peace now and one day will bring peace to the whole world. Isaiah 9-2 says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. We live in dark days, and it's easy to be discouraged. There is so much hatred on every hand. It feels like the national blood pressure has gone up a hundred points in the last few years. We are an angry, unhappy nation right now, and there seems to be no end in sight. We were taught, at least I was taught, my generation, we were taught never to discuss politics or religion in polite company. But where is that polite company these days? Just try talking politics over the holidays and see what happens. I bet some of you have already found out. It may not go well for you, even with people you love, even with your own flesh and blood, even with your loved ones gathered around you, even with those people. If you say one wrong word, you risk an explosion. We walk on eggshells during the holidays, lest we say something that somehow offends someone. And that brings us back to the words of Phillips Brooks, the hopes and fears of all the years. Well, we've got the fear part down just fine, but where is the hope? Listen to Isaiah's answer. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor because he has the answers we need. Mighty God, because he has the power to help us. Everlasting Father, because he knows us and loves us anyway. Prince of Peace, because he alone can fix what is broken. I'm glad Christmas has finally arrived. It feels to me, this year at least, like it's come just in the nick of time. In mentioning Isaiah 9-6, I intentionally passed over one phrase. The government shall be upon his shoulders. Who's the his? That's the baby that will be born. His shoulders, the shoulders of Jesus. That means he, this baby born in Bethlehem, can bear the full weight of the world and of all its problems. Now, it's easy to say that. It can be hard to believe. In one of his books, David Jeremiah mentions a man named George McCausland. Many years ago, over a century ago, he served as director of a YMCA in western Pennsylvania. It was a difficult moment, a hard time, a bad situation, because the YMCA was losing money, membership, and staff. McCausland worked 85 hours a week trying to fix things. He couldn't sleep at night. Even when he was away from the job, he was worrying and fretting about problems he couldn't solve. A therapist 
a counselor, warned him that he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Somehow, he needed to let go and let God take charge of his problems. We've all heard that phrase, let go and let God. But uh, it's easier sometimes to say that than to do it. How do you do something like that, especially when you feel burdened and overwhelmed? Well, for George McCausland, the breakthrough came one day when he took a notebook and ventured into a forest not far from where he lived. As he walked through the woods, he could feel his muscles starting to relax. He sat down under a tree, and there he sighed and felt at ease for the first time in months. Taking out his notebook, he decided to let go of the burdens of his life. He wrote God a letter, a one-sentence letter that simply said, Dear God, today I hereby resign as general manager of the universe. Love, George. Looking back at that moment, he reflected with a twinkle in his eye, and wonder of wonders, God accepted my resignation. You know, many of us need to resign as general manager of the universe. Question, are you worn out from trying to help your children and your grandchildren take care of your parents and get your coworkers shaped up? Are you exhausted from trying to repair the broken people and the messed up situations all around you? No wonder you can't relax. No wonder you're tired all the time. No wonder you keep drinking coffee and all that caffeine is just hopping you up and it's not really solving your problems. In one of his sermons, Walt Gerber mentioned a plaque hanging on his wall. This is what it said. Walt, do not feel totally, personally, irrevocably responsible for everything. That's my job. Love God. That caught my eye because it reminds me of a principle I like to call the first law of the spiritual life. He's God and we're not. If you've never heard that before, you might want to write that down. The first law of the spiritual life. He's God and we're not. If you understand that truth, then you don't have to take on impossible burdens only God could handle anyway. Do you remember the movie Rudy? Well, in that movie, there's a scene where the young man despairs of ever making the Notre Dame football team. He's too small, too slow, too weak, and in every way fails to meet the challenge. Totally discouraged, he goes to a priest and asks if he will ever make the team. The priest smiles and says that in 35 years, he has learned only two things for certain. First, there is a God, and second, I'm not him. Christmas is important for many reasons, but among other things, it reminds us we are not in charge. That's always a good thing to remember, isn't it? So let me tell you a story. It's a story about my bike accident. Some of you may have heard me talking about this on the radio from time to time. Well, it happened three years ago when I went for a bike ride in early January. I believe it was January the 2nd or the 3rd of that year. It was a cold, clear day in Kansas City, and even though we had some snow on the ground, I thought the bike trail would be clear enough for a quick ride. When I got to the trail, I noticed no other cars in the parking lot. That should have been a sign to me. All the smart people were somewhere else that day. But I took my bike out and began to ride down the trail. 
There was ice here and there, but I managed to make my way around it with little trouble. After going three miles down the trail, I came to a small patch of ice, which I decided, foolishly, I could ride over. That was a mistake. About halfway across the patch of ice, my bike began to slip. I mean, it happened just like that. That's a helpless feeling because the bike is going down and there is nothing you can do to stop it. I was riding with my feet clipped to the pedals. Well, it happened so fast, I didn't have time to get my feet free. As I hit the ground, I turned my head in time to see my left ankle turn partway around. It was like one of those ESPN commercials where they say, you might want to look away from the screen when they show a football injury. At that moment, I broke two bones in my left leg, a bone in my ankle, and dislocated my ankle, which turned out to be the most serious injury. By then, I was lying on the ice. When I lifted my leg, my ankle dangled from the end. That wasn't good. The paramedics came, stabilized my leg, and took me to the hospital. That eventually led to three surgeries during January. I ended up BBR, bed, bathroom, recliner, for almost three months. I learned to use a walker, and then a knee scooter, and then a cane. It was a slow process of getting better, a little bit at a time. In April, I began riding my bike again, slowly at first, and no ice, I should say. And by that December, I had ridden over 1,800 miles. Now, three years have passed. I have some hardware in my left leg that will probably be with me for the rest of my life. People say, does it hurt? No, not really. I don't think about it most days. Sometimes my leg down there by that ankle gets a little bit stiff. I can do four things that are important to me. Walk, ride my bike, drive a car, and stand up and preach. I can't run, but I didn't run before my accident, so no loss there. I mention all of that to tell you something that happened a few months after the accident and after I was back on my bike. I was in Tupelo, Mississippi for a board meeting of the American Family Association. During the luncheon before our meeting, one of my fellow board members who knew about the accident asked me, what has God taught you through your accident? That caught me by surprise because it was the first time anyone had asked me that question. Now, when I get asked something, and I'm not prepared for it. My policy is, when you don't know what to say, go with whatever your first thought is and see where that leads you. And that's what I did in this case. I said something like this. I have learned how completely unimportant I am. For three months, I was laid up, and the world got along just fine without me. I was worried about the ministry I lead, but keep believing kept right on going. In fact, everything seemed to go just fine, maybe even a little better while I was laid up. We all like to feel indispensable. The graveyards are filled with indispensable men. That's a crucial thought, worthy of some reflection. We're not as important as we think we are. Let me say it another way. You're not as important as you think you are. Let me be clear. I am definitely not as important as I like to think I am. It's a humbling thing to realize the world was spinning along just fine before we showed up, and it will keep spinning 
after we're gone. For that matter, God was doing just fine before we showed up on the scene, and He will still be on His throne long after we are gone. I think it was A.W. Tozer who remarked that if every man on earth became an atheist, nothing about God would change. We know all these things are true, but we live as if they aren't. That is, we act as if we're indispensable, but we are very dispensable indeed. It is a great advance spiritually to embrace that reality. In fact, that might be the ultimate reality check. You want to know how big a hole you'll leave when you're gone? Stick your arm into a bucket of water and then pull it out. The hole in the water is the hole you'll leave behind. Now, perhaps that sounds depressing, but reality shouldn't depress us. In fact, I think honestly, there's nothing quite as bracing as a cold splash of reality right in the face. You see, it's like the old Shaker hymn says, "'Tis a gift to be simple, "'tis a gift to be free, "'tis a gift to come down where we ought to be." Christmas reminds us to come down where we ought to be. We aren't in charge, and we never were. So, if you ever visit the Holy Land, one of the sites you will visit is the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. The church is built over the reputed spot where Mary gave birth to Jesus. To get to the church, you first walk across a broad plaza, and then you come to a tiny entrance. And I should just say that the Church of the Nativity is one of the oldest churches in Christendom. They say it goes back 1,800 years, but probably it's actually older than that. So you have these very, very, very old buildings. You go across this broad plaza, and there's this old, very old sanctuary, and you come to this tiny entrance. What I mean is, it's so tiny you have to duck down to get inside. Now, I'm over six feet tall, and every time I've been to Bethlehem, to the Church of the Holy Nativity, I got to bend way down to get inside. It seems strange, have this old church with this really tiny entrance. The entry is low because several centuries ago, the local big shots, the big wigs, the hot dogs, the guys who thought they were really important, liked to ride their horses right into the sanctuary. The priests felt rightly that that was inappropriate. So they lowered the entrance to force the great men to dismount before entering the church. There is a lesson here if we will receive it. If you want to go to heaven, you got to get off your high horse. Until you do, you will never be saved. You could be a king like Herod, but you've got to bow down. You could be one of the scribes, but you've got to bow down. You could be a shepherd, but you've got to bow down. You could be a wise man, but you've got to bow down. No matter who you are, or what you are, or where you are, or how much you've made, or what your accomplishments are, if you want to go to heaven, you got to bow down. There's no other way to get there. We're so worn out from carrying the world on our shoulders, as if we are mighty Atlas with superhuman strength. No wonder we feel so tired. We've been trying to do what only God can do. So now, it's Christmas time. On this happy day, we celebrate the central miracle of the Christian faith, the birth of Jesus Christ. Theologians call this the incarnation, which means to take the form of human flesh. Skeptics and unbelievers have attacked our faith at precisely this point, the notion that God could ever become a man, much less a baby. But that's exactly what happened 
at Bethlehem to quote the words of Charles Wesley from a familiar Christmas carol, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity. Either you believe that or you don't. If you don't, then Christmas is just another day to you. But if you believe that, then you shouldn't have any trouble believing anything else the Bible says. So, many of us approach the end of the year with a heavy load of worries about the future. At the beginning of this message, I mentioned some of the big problems we face. Wars and rumors of war, rising prices, political turmoil, crime spiraling. We're angry and we're afraid. Perhaps I should say we're angry because we are afraid. Then there are career questions, health issues, a marriage that needs repair, a host of financial difficulties, and an armful of unfulfilled dreams. We wonder if next year will simply mean more of the same. Sometimes we feel everything depends on us, and we are totally, personally, irrevocably responsible for everything. Christmas reminds us that God is God, and we are not. He can arrange for a virgin to become pregnant. He can cause a Roman emperor to order a census at precisely the right moment in history. He can ensure the baby will be born in exactly the place and exactly the time prophesied hundreds of years earlier. He can put a star in the night at the right moment so those magi from the east will follow it and show up at Bethlehem at the right moment, at the right time, with exactly the right question. What I'm saying is, our God can bring together angels, shepherds, and wise men to celebrate that miraculous birth. And He can take a tiny baby born in a stable and make that baby the Savior of the world. If God can do that, what are you so worried about? That's why the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy. If you look at the world around you, you're going to be depressed. So I say to you, lift up your eyes. Look at the manger in Bethlehem. That little baby is God's good news of great joy. Are you tired of running the universe? I urge you to turn in your letter of resignation. It will be accepted in heaven. Phillips Brooks was right. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. As we come to the end of the year, there is too much fear and not enough hope but that won't last forever. God's answer is found in Bethlehem. The baby in the manger means God is fixing what has gone wrong with the world. It's a big job, and 2,000 years later, the work is still not done. But a light shines from the manger to tell us that darkness will not win in the end. Christmas means Jesus can carry the full weight of all your problems, for the government will be on his shoulders. Whose shoulders? the shoulders of Jesus. His shoulders are big enough and strong enough to carry you and all your problems. We need not be afraid. The baby in the manger is God's answer, not just for us personally, but for the whole world. He will reign forever. His kingdom will never end. Let the weary world rejoice. Here's a simple prayer for you to pray. Holy Lord, thank you that your shoulders are strong enough to carry all my burdens today. Amen. Thank you for listening today from all of us at American Family Radio. 
Merry Christmas. You've been listening to a special program on American Family Radio featuring Dr. Ray Pritchard. Ray is president of Keep Believing Ministries, and you can learn more about the ministry at keepbelieving.com. Thanks for listening, and Merry Christmas from AFR.